Our congregational reading this month has focused on the Gospel of Luke. It is a book that describes Jesus as the Savior of all of humanity. He did not come to die just for those of a Jewish background, but he came to die for Gentiles. His reach extended well beyond the societal norms of his day to include even the Samaritans and the outcasts. Jesus loves all. Jesus died for all. One of the great characteristics of the book of Luke is that Jesus is depicted as a master teacher. He is the one who can communicate heavenly truths through everyday means. And so memorable parables are found scattered throughout the book. It's easy for us to learn about a father's love when we study the parable of the prodigal son. It's easy for us to understand who our neighbor truly is when we study the parable of the Good Samaritan. But Jesus does not merely teach by parable, although his parables are powerful. He teaches in a variety of other ways. There are portions of the book in which he simply provides direct instruction. He challenges his audience. And there are instances in the book in which he teaches by way of example. The passage that we're going to consider this morning, the 18th chapter of the book of Luke, is a passage that helps us to have a better appreciation of who we are. It is a section of scripture in which Jesus challenges us to rely more upon God and less upon ourselves. And it is a passage of scripture that helps us to learn a great deal about our self-image. It should not surprise you to know that Scripture challenges us to evaluate our own lives in light of what God has revealed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, for example, the Apostle Paul says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. The whole idea of self-examination is the idea of being able to honestly evaluate, to be able to look at our own actions and compare those actions to what God's truth states clearly. Am I living in a way that honors what God has said, or is my life different? Is it in violation of the explicit will of God? That question Are you living in a way that honors God's plan is an important one. And whether you are actually able to honestly evaluate yourself, God certainly is. Before we get to Luke 18, look for just a moment at Luke chapter 16. And I want you to see what the text says in verse 15. Luke chapter 16 And verse 15, the Bible says, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, 
but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, if you look at the context of that verse, you find that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, verse 14, who were lovers of money and also heard these things and derided him. Who were the Pharisees? A sect of Judaism that held to strict adherence to following the literal words of the law, not something necessarily that we would disagree with, but individuals whose lives did not match their testimony. That was the problem. In other words, they talked a good game. If you listened to what they had to say, you would find very little reason to shake your head against them. But Christianity, following God, is more than just talking a good game. God intends for us to be obedient. The ability to evaluate whether we are obedient or not is important. And we're going to notice in a variety of ways in Luke, the 18th chapter, that Jesus challenges us to do just that. To introduce this, there are several questions that we'll be considering this morning. The first is this, and it's found from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. How would you respond if I ask you, do you depend on God? That's a fair question, isn't it? Do you depend upon God? Is your life structured that you could not function were it not for your relationship with God? And is your dependence such that you will beg over and over and over for his help and for his relief? That's the picture that we find in the first eight verses of Luke, the 18th chapter. Notice how the passage begins in verse 1, and it tells us Jesus' point in telling the following parable. It says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Immediately we see the essence of what Jesus is trying to get across. This is a parable to illustrate the need for persistence. A parable that illustrates a demand for dependence. That individuals always ought to approach the throne of God, never giving up, never quitting. Asking God for assistance, asking God for relief. Now to illustrate the point, Jesus tells the parable, verse 2 beginning. Saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard men. Now there was a widow in that city. And she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Jesus explained, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? 
Now to appreciate what's taking place in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, you need to understand that prayer is featured throughout Luke's gospel. It is featured in the life of Jesus particularly. There are several instances in which Jesus is going about his business and he is involved and engaged in praying to God. For example, look at Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And notice verse 21. Luke mentions prayer in conjunction with the baptism of Jesus. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open. In Luke, the sixth chapter, he describes how Jesus is about to choose his apostles. In verse 12 of that text, the Bible says, It came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. In Luke, the ninth chapter, the text says of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, in verse 18, it happened that he was alone praying. In verses 28 and 29 of that same passage, the text says it came to pass about after eight days after these sayings that he took Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. All of these significant events in Jesus' life are bathed in his prayers. And of course, in Luke, the 11th chapter, the disciples saw Jesus praying. Verse 1, it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. You cannot read about the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke without noticing the emphasis that Luke places on Jesus' willingness to pray. But what you also notice is that Jesus did not just pray, he also taught his followers how to pray. And there's an extended discussion of that in Luke, the 11th chapter, after verse 1. Jesus, for example, teaches the apostles and the disciples what they should pray. In verse 2, he says, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Those familiar words are parallel to what Matthew tells us in Matthew the sixth chapter. We refer to Matthew's account often as the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. Jesus is addressing the sorts of things that you ought to be concerned about when you go before the throne of God. But in Luke's account, he doesn't just tell us what we should pray. He explains why. And so in verse 5 and following, he said to them, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. 
I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. If our friends are willing to bless us because of persistence, how much more will the God who loves us abundantly bless us when we persistently rely upon him in prayer? Why do we pray? Because God loves us, because God is willing to bless us, because God hears us, and because God cares. And so Jesus talks about what we should pray and why we should pray. And he even goes into detail about how in verse 9 of the passage when he says, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. How often do we truly beg God in our prayers? If we do, perhaps it is a sign that we depend more upon him and less upon ourselves. And yet I think you realize that all too often, rather than turning our troubles and our problems over to God, we try to take matters into our own hands. To solve the issues by our own ingenuity, by our own resources, in our own time, to our own liking. Do we truly depend upon God? What Luke the 18th chapter is teaching us in verse 1 beginning is that prayer must be a constant part of the Christian's life. We must persist in prayer. The widow in the parable does not give up despite the reputation of the judge. And the point that Jesus is making very simply and very powerfully is this. If a wicked judge will grant a request because of persistence, how much more will the God who longs for justice be willing to grant such a request? Let us never forget the fact that our God is the God who is just. The God who does what is right. I want you to see how Paul describes him in Romans the second chapter beginning in verse 3. Romans chapter 2 beginning in verse 3. He says, and do you think, O man... You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, on the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For with God, there is no partiality. It is absolutely the case that there are some who are wicked, who might grant a request just to be freed from the responsibility or the burden of hearing someone who persistently makes a plea before them. But our God is a just God. He is the God who will do what is right. He is the God who is good. And so he is the God to whom we petition and upon whom we depend. When we focus on the parable of the persistent widow in Luke the 18th chapter, verses 1 through 8, we frequently talk about the need for perseverance in our prayers, persistence, continuing to go before the throne of God. But why? What's the point? We persist in our prayers as an indication that we depend upon God. If you're not praying like you should, that perhaps is a good indicator that you do not depend upon God like you should. I would urge you, I would challenge you to learn to depend upon God. Another question for us to consider from this context. Do you recognize that you are a sinner? Now, I suppose when we ask that question, the immediate reaction that we would give is, of course. You know the words of Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 says, there is none who does good, no, not one. And so the obvious academic answer to the question, am I a sinner, is yes, indeed, I am. But it's one thing to be able to give voice to that thought, to be able to say, yes, I am a sinner. But it's altogether a different thing to understand what that means. And in order to make that point to the people of his day, Jesus told another parable. Look at how Luke 18 continues in verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Again, at the beginning of this parable, we understand the point that Jesus is going to make. He is speaking to individuals who have deemed themselves to be sufficiently righteous. Individuals who are proud of their behavior. The folks that Jesus was talking to in this passage would have been the kind of people who would not have missed a single service of the church. If the doors were open, they would have been present. If there was an event, they would have been there. These are the kind of folks who would have been outwardly involved. They would have wanted everyone to know that they were busy, busy, busy doing the Lord's work. But just because someone is physically present and just because someone is engaged and just because someone is involved does not mean that that understanding of a proper relationship with God is present in their life. And so I want you to watch what Jesus does as this parable unfolds. He says two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, 
extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What's the point of this passage? Jesus is trying to tell the individuals of his day that we must not be self-righteous. That your righteousness does not come from your own behavior or actions. Your righteousness comes from your relationship with Christ. And yet sometimes we suffer from the same problem that the Pharisees suffered from. We have a tendency to look around and begin to compare ourselves with those around us. We can find individuals that we know are living an obviously more wicked life than we are. And we find comfort in acknowledging that although we may not be what God wants us to be, at least we're better than this fellow over here. That's the very mentality that Jesus is disputing in this passage. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, we dare not compare ourselves or class ourselves with those who compare themselves to themselves. They measuring themselves by themselves are not wise. In other words, you are not the standard for me, nor am I the standard for you. We do not compare our own behavior to the way of those who are standing on each side of us. We do not really think that God will grade us on the curve, and as long as we're better than the majority, then perhaps we will indeed be acknowledged and blessed. We recognize instead that our God compares us to His Word and to his son, Christ Jesus. The Pharisees stood praying self-righteously. And as a result, he does the very thing that Jesus condemns in verse 9. He despises others. You can see him with his own words. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm certainly not like this tax collector. How easy it is for us to do something very, very similar. And yet in this passage, what we find is Jesus teaching us to do otherwise. Look at the mentality exhibited by the tax collector. Verse 13. The text says, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The details in Jesus' parable are significant. Rather than standing in the midst of the people so that everyone could hear about how great he is like the Pharisee, the tax collector stands far off. 
rather than proudly looking into the heavens and demanding salvation on the basis of his own actions, the tax collector would not raise his eyes to heaven. Rather than telling God how fortunate he is to have me on his side, the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How do you view yourself? Do you think of yourself that God is lucky to have you? Do you think that the church is fortunate because of you? That were it not for you, nothing could go on? Or do you recognize that were it not for Christ, nothing could go on? Jesus challenges the way that we view ourselves. It's easy for us to become self-important and have an inflated sense of worth, particularly if we're only looking at the way others in our very wicked world live. But God is calling us to do differently. I want you to notice the words of James chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. He writes, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. There's a picture presented here in James, the fourth chapter, that is a great challenge to the way that we often live in this life. In many instances, we put up a false front. We act as if nothing is wrong, that everything is always right. There is at least a picture of joy on our face. But the challenge that comes from James is that we should instead lament and mourn. I wonder whether you truly recognize that you are a sinner. And I wonder if you understand the import of sin. It is because of my sin, and it is because of your sin, that Jesus the Christ went to the cross. How terrible, and yet how powerful. We have hope only because of Jesus. In this passage, Luke the 18th chapter, our Savior challenges our self-image. Do you truly depend upon God? And do you recognize yourself as a sinner? There are other questions from this section of Scripture that we will continue to examine this evening. And I'm thankful that we have the time to be together to worship our God, to be able to honor His Son, Jesus Christ.
and to be able to extend our Lord's invitation. I want you to know that Jesus did come to this earth so that you could be saved. I want you to know that God has a plan for your salvation and that he desires you to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I want you to know that Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that your sins could be washed away. And I want you to know that you must yield by faith to God's plan. Hearing his word, believing, repenting of sin, confessing Christ, and being baptized to have your sins washed away. If you're here this morning and you have not done those things, you have the opportunity. And if you're here and you have obeyed the gospel in days gone by, but you haven't lived like you should, do you depend upon God? Do you recognize that you are a sinner? Are you willing to yield your will to the will of Christ?